0: Join me and follow along as I share mine and other stories as we buy, sell, or merge healthcare businesses and physical therapy practices. I'm Dave Kittle, and this is The Dave Kittle Show. Hey, welcome back to The Dave Kittle Show. I am Dave Kittle, owner of Concierge Pain Relief Home Physical Therapy in New York City, and the CEO of the Fieldmaker Group. We're currently speaking with practice owners In regards to partnering or acquiring some or all their practice. And today we have Ike Okawuba on the show. We're gonna be talking about if you are looking to sell as a practice owner, we're gonna talk about here's exactly how to make your business, your service based business, your home health company attractive to a buyer. And Ike, about 18 months ago, acquired a home health company. We're gonna get into all that in regards to what made him interested in this specific business and all that to help you as practice owners best get prepared and ready to sell your service based business. Before we do so, Ike, how are we doing? Welcome on. Thanks, thanks for having me. Excellent. So, appreciate your time. Let's get right into it. So, why acquire a home health company? You did not have one before that, and as far as I recall from the first or second call that we had, you did not work in a home health company. So, why the industry briefly? Uh maybe a little bit of a background on yourself and then we'll kind of get into the practice, the company that you uh, acquired.
1: Yeah, sure. So, in terms of my background, I had a background in consulting. I was working for a large consulting company for about seven years or so. After that, I left to do independent consulting, and then at the same time, I worked on some startup uh, businesses in the healthcare space. It started off with a healthcare marketing company. Specifically, I was working with orthopedic and pain surgeons helping to market their their practice, and that that business. As you know, being in physical therapy is really referral based. So our, our company was doing a lot of boots on the ground, grassroots type marketing for these physicians to help drive more patients into their their practice and help grow their practice. So just just being in that that space in the ortho world, you know, you get visibility to a lot of things that is happening in the healthcare space. So you know, from that, there was side ventures that we did in terms of you know, small joint venture investments when it came to like a medical, particular medical product or device. So I was very familiar with the healthcare industry. What what drew me to the home health, in, in my case, more specifically home care business was one, I knew a little bit about it, right? But I also knew that this was a business that I can own myself without having a physician license. So I spent a lot of time helping grow other providers' practices, so I wanted to take some of that experience and, and knowledge myself and apply it to a business that that I own. So pretty much take my own advice, right? And, um, and get some equity for yourself. Yes, yeah. So so yeah. So that's that's kind of how how I landed on getting into the home health home care industry. And particularly, right, I saw that it was a growing industry, right? If you look at the way our everyday lives are today, right, everything is going to the mode where you have, you're able to do things in your home, right? It's not the traditional facility-based type world. So that's where I saw the trend going to. And then if you just look at the demographics in terms of where, you know, people want to have their, their care, their home care, their health their care services, they prefer to have it in a home, right? So that's that's one piece. And then the economic side of it, right? So if you compare facility-based services I and mean, the cost of it compared to the cost of providing those same services in the home, right? It's multiples in terms of cost efficiency. So all those data points was, you know, really the driver to point me in in a direction to get into this industry. So that's that's how I landed here.
0: Yeah, makes a lot of sense, and definitely stable, right? Like especially through COVID. I mean, there's always yeah. going to be demand. There's more and more people that want to age at home or age gracefully in place. Yeah. There's all these different terms, right? About you yeah. know having some some convenient service come to you. Let's go back to why does a seller want to sell? There were four D's that we talked about. Do you remember what those were? Not to quiz you or anything, but what are some of the reasons why a seller would want to exit or, or get out of the business? Yeah. So the, the four reasons
1: are the four D's is death. Divorce, disability, and a new one that I didn't realize was a fourth D. To me, it was just the three Ds, but desire, which um, ironically, in mean, my situation, when I acquired this company, my seller felt into that that fourth D.
0: Got it. So, and I would list like under disability, like any health issue, health condition. So, yeah. you know, um, we've spoken to some practice owners that have had other medical diagnoses recently where they're not like completely disabled, but there are some medical issues. So that certainly would be part of it. So, okay. So let's get into what are some ways we could start at the initial phase, uh, the, the pre-LOI phase when you're just, you know, even before meeting the seller, what are some initial things that a business owner, a healthcare practice owner can do to start preparing for sale for exit and making the practice attractive to a buyer like you or or like myself,
1: yeah. So definitely putting in the infrastructure when it comes to understanding what attracts a, a, a buyer. So for me, I went through thousands of businesses when it came to looking to buy a business, right? And uh, the type of business that was attracted to me when just getting some high level information, right, was one. You know, definitely financials. Right, is the business trending in the right direction? Right, is it? going up, not down, or at least going up a little bit and somewhat steady, but definitely not not down, right? So from a revenue and a profitability standpoint, right? So I looked at the last three years, right? And seeing those numbers, right? The second theme is, are they asking for a reasonable price, right? So, you know, a seller can, best thing you can do is try to get an understanding of what these companies typically trade for. So for me, if I, if I saw those 2 things, those are the things that get your juices going when you're looking at, to buy a business where it gets you excited just from seeing those 2 things. And obviously, you got to get more details, and get more information, whether you're dealing with the broker or the, or the seller themselves. But those were the 2 key things, right? So it's, it's setting yourself up to have your business in that fashion, definitely growing. Nobody wants to you know buy a business on the way down not a sophisticated buyer, at least, right? And then having reasonable price expectations.
0: Mm, so you looked at thousands of businesses, you probably saw an array of uh, of differences between asking prices, market rate, speed at how they would get you information, reply to your request, those types of things. So let's just talk really quick. How are you, or how did you look at uh, reasonable expectations in regards to like market rate for the value of some of these home care companies.
1: Yeah. So it's seeing what other um, home care companies has, has sold for, I was fortunate enough to work with other people that bought companies in this field. So they had a, a good idea of, you know, what these, these companies were trading for. Right. And it's the same information that the banks use as well, right? These banks have their own industry verticals that they play in and they you know, underwrite these deals, you know, all the time, and they have their own economics in terms of what things need to, where things need to fall in terms of the ability of the buyer to service the debt based on the cash flow that's coming out of the business.
0: Right. Makes a lot of sense. Okay. So let's get into your situation. So you sign an NDA with this, this practice once you, or this business once you found it, so you sign the NDA, and you kind of at that point you just get high level financials, and I think you said the financials and the ad backs. You probably briefly evaluated like is this asking price market rate in regards to those financials and ad backs, and you either would get I guess an, an asking price from the broker, or you would ask for some you know like realistic range of offers just to you know not be completely blind bidding there. And also to not waste your time, right? So those are some of the things that you mentioned in the pre-interview.
1: Yes, correct. Yes, yeah, so for me, and as you mentioned, like I, I've looked at thousands of these these businesses, right? But the majority of these businesses, they don't. I don't make it to the name of the business, right? If the financials aren't trending in the right direction, or the price expectations aren't aren't realistic, right? So but once you get to that point and understand that, all right, this is something, this is a, a, a transaction that I can actually close, right? That's when you try to dig in a little bit more into the information, understand why the, the seller is transitioning out of the business and to try to get a meeting with that, that seller and hear about their background, give them background about yourself and why you think this will be a good fit for both of you.
0: Right. What would be an example of an unrealistic expectation? of valuation or asking price for one of these businesses that you passed on over the past couple of years? Yes, yeah, So i have to break it up into to
1: segments. So in my segments, I, I talk about the profitability of the business, right? So think about the profitability of a business, their range as as neighborhoods, right? So a company that is less than a million dollars in, in earnings or EBITDA, right? They are in a completely separate neighborhood than a company that is 1 million to 3 million in earnings or EBITDA, right? Companies less than a million in EBITDA tend to trade for 2 to 3 times seller discretionary earnings. Companies within the 1 to 3 million in earnings or EBITDA tend to trade 3 to 5 times that amount, right? That's a general framework, right? You have specific industries where they might differ, but that's a general general framework, right? So I've seen companies that were barely at the $1 million mark and expecting a six to seven times multiple on their earnings.
0: So just just to clarify, so a company that's doing a million in top-line revenue or a million in EBITDA, you said? EBITDA. EBITDA. Okay. So if a healthcare company that's doing a million in EBITDA, they're doing what? 3 million in top-line revenue or 4?
1: For home care, it varies, and, and it can vary based on the type of payers that you have, right? But generally, they have about fifteen to twenty-five percent profit margin, right? So, one million in, in our industry
0: will may equate to like five million top line revenue. Got it. Makes sense. Okay, so those you kind of knew the comparables. You had some industry experts or some colleagues and friends that had acquired some home care companies. So you got some. Some of that information because a lot of the information is not public unless there's public companies buying home care companies where they have to kind of disclose like yeah. how much they paid for something right so a lot of this is yeah. private just like in physical therapy other than the usphs of the, of the world that are like public physical therapy companies so you've found some market rate comparable deal sizes you kind of knew what other home care companies were selling for via some of your friends and colleagues
1: yeah. And most sophisticated buyers will have that, right? Which is what a seller wants, right? So the seller wants a sophisticated buyer, right? They don't want to go through a process of selling their company and providing information and back and forth all for the end of the day, they don't actually close a deal and they have to start all, start over again, right? So most sophisticated buyers will look into having that, that information, reach out to their War market to, to find a connection that have some experience in the industry just to get an understanding of what they're paying for. And
0: if they don't, right, when they get to a bank, the bank is got to let them know. Right. Okay. So let's say... So you at, at some point, you sign the NDA, you put an offer in, the seller agreed to the offer. So agreed to your letter of intent, non-binding letter of intent. So that number yes. could change. And you didn't mention it one way or the other, but that number could change if more mm-hmm. skeletons are found in the closet, whatever So the offer was accepted, you enter preliminary due diligence, you're basically in this phase, you're kind of like checking and verifying some of the financials, you're asking more questions, you're digging into the tax returns, the bank statements, all that, you're looking for any any inconsistencies. What are some either something there or something around this scenario, this point where this could uh, delay a deal, this could kill a deal? What are some things here that you're kind of digging into that were important to you at this point?
1: Yeah. So the first thing I wouldn't say this, this is necessarily a deal killer, but it does raise some, a little bit of concern. Right. Um, when, once you, once you agree to the offer price and the LOI is signed by both parties, the buyer is going to request some information, right? The speed in which that information comes, right. You know, can tell a story to the, to the buyer. Right. And the story could be right or wrong, but the, the signals that they're getting that is, you know, the seller may not be as ready to move forward, or the seller is not as organized in terms of finding that information to get it back to him. Right. Again, not necessarily deal killer, but it does those those send, send signals to the buyer, the person that they're they're dealing with. My particular situation, and I was fortunate, right, that seller that I was working with when we put out a request of the things that we wanted, he was Super responsive, super fast in terms of getting us that information and knew exactly where everything was.
0: So, another thing that we talked about in the pre interview was it was the speed of responsiveness. And sometimes the longer it takes to get documents or files or agreements sent to you or I, like we'd be asking for insurance contracts, which I think you would be asking for as well. You'd be asking for, you know, so lease agreements for us, brick and mortar, physical therapy practice. You said in the pre-interview that where you're at right now, this office is, you know, you, you guys didn't buy the real estate, so you're leasing it. So you would have needed the lease agreement just for this space, the office that you're in right now. So the speed at the rate that you're able to get some of these documents, so two or three days versus two or three weeks, sometimes could yeah. be massive in regards to yeah. like... Should there be concerns here? Like, what's taking so long? Like, is, is yeah. the seller really serious? Are they going to try to get out of it? Are they having some remorse yeah. or regret already? Like, those are the things going through your head and my head, right? At that point. Yeah, exactly.
1: Exactly. Right. And, you know, we're all the mindset that we're going to buy a business, right? No matter what, like, we are going to buy a business, right? And if the business that we're looking at, they're sending these signals that's going to give us pause, right? we're going to find another business to to spend our time on. Right. So yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, those, those are things that are sending signal to us and, you know, given, giving us particular can give us some concern when you're in those stages of um, doing your due diligence.
0: Yeah. Another thing to just touch back on, I think you and I mentioned it previously, but the confidence of a seller's direct answers or direct responses to questions. And sometimes if they don't know, like it's great for them to just be like, Hey, I don't know that. Like I'll get it from my accountant, my bookkeeper or whatever. I don't know that specifically, or I don't know it, but I can speak to someone who can get you that answer. But the sellers that you and I have spoken with and the one that you were specifically dealing with, they were great at responding directly But there was others that you had probably spoken with over the years where they were either I think you described it as like they just they didn't really have answers to all the questions like and it would be either are they just not a business person? Are they not? They're not on the ball of their numbers. Yeah. Or are they hiding something? And then it's like we need to investigate that. Right.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, and, you know, there's some people that are just not as good with their numbers as others, right? I talk to, you know, sellers and ask them about their business and they are just spitting out numbers right there on a call, right? Some folks are just like, "Uh, well, let me get back to you and, and check on that, right? So either way, it's... Definitely, someone knowing their numbers definitely better, right? Someone not knowing their numbers is not necessarily a, a deal killer. But again, when we talk about signals that's being sent to, to buyers, right? Them being out of touch with the the numbers brings up some of those those same questions, right? Are they just completely hands off with the business, or out of touch, or is there something that they're that they're trying to hide? But definitely, the more people that you have to go through, right, the harder the process is particularly when you don't have clean financials, right? So the seller that I worked for, for this business, very old school, very, not a lot of technology, but his financials were a clean as a whistle, right? His, his bank's statements, his bank transactions, everything else for business was in that business account. There weren't any personal transactions there. The stuff that he wrote down in his p like he literally wrote down his p statement, <laughs>
0: Tell me about the component of, briefly, uh, the potential seller, the intersection of integrity, being honest, communication, clarity, also being open and available for in-person meetings during the offer stage. So they agree to an offer, but you're doing your due diligence. Talk about connecting the dots around, are they being honest? Are they communicating? Is there clarity here? Are they available for in-person meetings? All the things that would go into... Building a relationship for this yeah. potential deal to happen.
1: Yes, yeah, so I, I think obviously, honesty is the best best policy, right? And at the end of the day, there's not going to ever be a perfect business. I think buyers understand that, but um, it's never a good idea to try to hide something, right? At the end of the day, right, a sophisticated buyer is going to be able to connect the dots as they're going through due diligence, right? You know, I remember having conversations pre-LOI stage, right? And once we got post-LOI and we're having discussions, right, something's always going to come up where it's just like, wait a minute, does that tie exactly to like what they said previously, no matter what it is, right, prior to to LOI, right? Because if it's a conflict, and again, no matter what that conflict is and you find inconsistent statements, then you're thinking like, all right, what other things are they inconsistent (laughs) about, (laughs) Well, other things that they tell me that, you know, may not actually turn out to be true that, um, that just hasn't, you know, come to bear. So, you know, I think those having that relationship. And being prepared to have that relationship with the potential buyer is beneficial to both sides, right? You know, one, as a seller, you want to get comfortable with the person that you're handling your business off to, right? And then two, from the buyer standpoint, right? They need to be comfortable that, all right, once I hand you all the money and I need you to to work with me during the transition phase, right? You know, you're going to be a, you know, a, a, a individual, of high integrity to to help me through that.
0: Right. Yeah. Perfect place to pause. If you guys find this valuable or insightful or helpful, go ahead and subscribe on YouTube to the Dave Kittle show or check it out on Apple iTunes or Spotify. Ike, if there's someone that wants to reach out to you, um, not that you're looking to do any paid consulting, I have no idea, but whether LinkedIn email address, uh, is there a place where someone can reach out to you if they want to learn more or uh, you know, either buy your, uh, your home care company or, or sell you the next one? Who knows? Yeah, preferably sell me the next one. Um,
1: (laughs) Yeah, they can reach out to me at ike at progression-investments.com.
0: Excellent. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Hey, it's Dave Kittle. Are you a healthcare business owner or physical therapy practice owner who is looking to figure out your succession plan or exit strategy? We might be able to help. And in fact, we may be interested in acquiring your practice. If you're interested, you can reach out to me. Shoot me an email at dave at concierge that's d-a-v-e at c-o-n-c-i-e-r-g-e pain relief.com or you can call me at any time 646-781-8884